Good job, McKinley. All right. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, uh, at the family meal, we're going to uh, announce the Dream Teamer of the Year, which I know you guys all have been waiting for, you know, just since last time we announced the Dream Teamer of the Year. Uh, but uh, if you want to stay for that, it's going to be fun. I think we're, we're giving away a prize. So uh, if you think it might be you, I would stay. Uh, if, if you're pretty sure it's not you, you should still probably stay. Uh, I want to, uh, want to thank Anthony last week. For those of you who were here last week, Anthony did a great job for me filling in last minute. Yeah. Yep. Uh, never thought the word weenie roast would be used from this pulpit, uh, but he said it. And if you missed last week, you missed one week of church, you miss a lot, uh, cause they talked about weenie roast, uh, which I will not be talking about this week, but I wanted to mention it because a weenie roast. Anyways, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are as we continue our series in Ephesians. And what we're doing is we're, we're zooming out and we're kind of looking at the big themes of Ephesians before we zone in on uh, the, the actual particulars of Ephesians. Doug Wilson says this, says, Considering the book of Ephesians, a chapter at a time is a little bit like taking pictures of the Rocky Mountains from outer space. There is no hope of covering everything. There is perhaps some hope of stirring up a desire in you to give yourself to a lifetime of meditating on the themes of this book. And that's really my goal is I want to stir your affections for Jesus. You're going to leave some of these sermons and be like, that was awesome. I love Jesus. What am I supposed to do now? And the answer is nothing. You're supposed to raise your hands and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. That is my only goal from these sermons is that you would praise Jesus all the more. And we looked at the first week at how we are gospel co-heirs. We are, we are one with the Jews. We are true Jews, even though we are bacon-eating Gentiles. And then we started last time I was here, uh, my very favorite sermon title that I've came up with in a long long time, which is God's plan for world domination. I mean, that is just a good sermon title. And uh, of course, you can't just finish that in one part. So we are now today in part two of God's plan for world domination. And uh, what we're going to look at today uh, is steps five. We looked at steps one through four. There's seven steps. Today we'll look at step five of God's plan for world domination. And before I pray and we jump into it, I might remind you what world domination looks like. What does God want? What is the, what is the plan for this mess of history? Have you ever thought that? You look at the world, you see hurricanes, you see suffering, you see all this pain in the world, and you think, what in the world is God doing? Where is this whole thing headed? Well, it's headed to, something just fell. Uh, it didn't get me though, so it's fine. Habakkuk 2.14 tells us God's plan for the whole world. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as water covers the sea. You notice what it said. It said that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. So when we go about and we say, I want to glorify God with my life, it's not that we're actually giving God glory. It's that we're showing people God's glory was already there all along. Uh, Isaiah 6.3 says, uh, this is the angel speaking in the heavens, and it says in one call to another, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Uh, it's kind of like um, when I was in, uh, I don't know, maybe fifth or sixth grade, I had one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. That's probably dramatic, but a lot of the things I say are dramatic. Uh, it, it was a traumatic experience for sure. Uh, we went to the nursing home to visit the old folks uh, as a school trip. And uh, my group is like two or three of us guys. We got paired with an old World War II veteran. Now, I don't know if he was really this old or is it just because I was young, but I mean, this guy looked like he knew Moses. He was so old. <laughs> He had none of his teeth left. He talked like this. And uh, 
He told us all of his war stories, and uh, he had been shot several times, uh, and so he began to show us his wounds, and uh, we, we got to one of his wounds, which happened to be in his bum, and uh, didn't particularly want to see that wound, but when you get to a certain age, you just stop caring what people think, and so he said, do you boys want to see that one? And uh, it wasn't really a question, because he just stood up, unbuckled his pants, and mooned us right there in the nursing home. His glory was laid bare. <laughs> that is what we are to do as Christians. Go around mooning people? No. <laughs> to lay bare the glory of God. To show people that God's glory is behind everything at all times. To give Him praise. And this is what we do. When you become a Christian, this is what happens to you. This is one of the things you're safe to. You have your eyes open and you begin to see God's glory everywhere. And the goal of it all is that at the end of history, we would all see God's glory everywhere. We would see God behind everything. And so his plan, as John Stott says, is that it begins in the will of God and it always ends in the glory of God. Now, we'll look at step five, but let me pray for us first and then we'll jump in. Father, as we turn back to our Bibles on this special day, as we always do, God, we come to your word and we're not looking for my thoughts. We're not looking for my opinions. We're not looking to be entertained. God, we're looking for you. It's only your words that bring dead things to life. It's the only word that can create something out of absolutely nothing. And some of us come in here today very aware that we bring nothing to the table. I'm aware as a pastor that I know that some of the people in front of me, they're coming in here on empty. And God, I pray that your word would fill them up. God, I pray that you would give them ears to hear. And I pray that you would give me words to speak. God, thank you. Thank you that you use us as a part of your plan. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So how does world domination happen? What is the plan? And the plan is us. It's you and I. Uh, that's what McKinley read, isn't it? At the end of Ephesians chapter 1, it says that we are the body of Christ, the one who fills all things in every way. So we are the fullness of Christ. We are the ones who go out and do this, who fill the earth with his glory. Now that's the, talking about us at a corporate level. That's what the church as a whole does. But as we think about Ephesians, we can also think about it at the individual level. One of the things I say at Ascent is I always want you guys to know that through Christ, you can experience salvation, find peace, know purpose, and live fulfilled. And so that's one of the things we're talking about here is that you can know purpose. You have a part of God's plan. And you might feel like I don't have a very big part, and the truth is, is that you don't. Uh, What I'm talking about today is how raindrops and snowflakes are formed. Now, a raindrop is not a flood. A snowflake is not a blizzard. But a blizzard is made up of snowflakes, and a flood is made up of raindrops. And so you might not feel significant, but what I'm telling you is, is God wants to form you into a raindrop that is a part of the flood that changes the entire world. We are a part of God's great plan. And there are seven steps. So the first step for all of you, whether you're a Christian or not, this is what God wants to do. The the way world domination begins in your life and, and then spreads to the whole world is God sends a preacher. Now, this is not who you think you would send for world domination, but he sends a preacher. And not just one like me who's wearing a snazzy pink shirt talking to a lot of you. A preacher is anybody who does the following. Who does this, number two, the preacher makes a declaration. It's one who's declaring. And the declaration sounds a lot like this. You are forgiven. You notice I didn't say it was a suggestion. I didn't tell you anything to do. I just looked at you in the eye and I said, you are forgiven. Because that's what preachers do. We preach a message. And the reason why I can declare that is because I believe it's been secured for you in Christ Jesus. The preacher makes a declaration. 
Now, this is always true, uh, even in uh, countries where Christianity is illegal. Uh, there's a, a book that I, I really enjoy. I'd give it to you. It's just a story of people who've come to Christ in Muslim countries. And uh, one of the things that has often happened is this miraculous dream that has reoccurred over and over and over and over again. People say a man in white shows up to them and he speaks to them in their dreams. And what's interesting is this man in white does not tell them that they are forgiven. What he always does is he says, there's a Christian in the town and this is where you will meet him. You see, even when God does something miraculous, he does it through normal preachers like you and I. He will not send an angel to preach the message. He might send an angel to tell you where the preacher is, but it always starts with a preacher who's making a declaration. And number three is the declaration then demands a response. You will respond. And every single week when I give you the declaration, you all respond. There's three different responses that I see every single week. The first one is indifference. Like, who cares? And I understand that. I can understand how me saying you are forgiven might not apply to your life. You might think, I don't understand why that matters to me, Blake. You, you don't know what problems I have at work. You haven't seen my bank account, obviously. That's great that I'm forgiven. But what does that actually do for my life? I mean, Kamala Harris is just one stroke away from being the president of the United States. What does this have to do with anything? I probably shouldn't have said that part. But um, I didn't take my medicine this morning. But uh, it's, it's indifference. It's like, what, is this, what does this matter? What does this matter for life? What does this matter for the world? That's what some people think. The second response is offense. Some people get offended when I preach the message, when I declare it over you. They, they get offended because, first off, they would say, well, how can you say that? How can you, preacher boy, stand up there in front of a room full of people and say that we are all forgiven? You don't know who's in this room. Are you telling me that if a murderer's in this room, he's forgiven? Are you telling me that if there's a rapist in the room, he's forgiven? Are you telling me, truly, you believe everyone is forgiven? And I understand that it is offensive. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that it is a stumbling block that many people stumble over. Because yes, I do. I declare it. I say you are forgiven and I give no thought to who is in the room. And that's what true preachers do. That people are also offended because they say, why? You know, why do I need the message? Some people don't think they need forgiveness. Uh, if I were to come to you after the service and say, hey, I, I just want you to know I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. And I want to let you know that I'm not going to withdraw $1,000 from your bank account this week. You would not tell me thank you. You slap me in the face and you say, who do you think you are? You could take $1,000 from my bank account. And this is how some people hear the gospel message of Jesus. They say, God has forgiven me? I don't need forgiveness from God. In fact, some people want an apology from God for the life that they think that God has given them. They don't believe that they need forgiveness. They believe that they're the ones who get to forgive or not forgive God. Uh, so uh, the, the final response, though, and the one that we're going for, the, the one that we hope always happens is that people respond with a personal faith. You hear the declaration, and it is a personal faith. The reason why I say personal faith is because it's not just a, I believe that that is true, but it's something that comes to your heart, and you feel it as true for yourself. It's the difference in me saying cancer exists, and me as a doctor looking at you in the eye and telling you, you have cancer. When I tell you that cancer exists, you know that it is true, you wish that it weren't true, but it doesn't really change your day. But if I look at you in the eye, and I say, you have cancer. It completely changes your life. This is what is supposed to happen when I preach the message of Jesus. You're supposed to hear it as something that is personal to you. That it changes the way that you live. And when you respond in that way, with personal faith, number four is that those people who respond with faith are saved by grace. They're not saved by their faith. Their faith is just the means to get them there. The grace is what saves them. Undeserved favor based upon what Jesus Christ has done. And that leads me to number five, which is where we'll spend the rest of our short time together today before we go eat birthday cake and celebrate. And that is that those who are saved by grace are then made new. 
You are made into a new creation by God. And as a reminder, my goal for this sermon is simply that at the end of it, when we sing, you would sing loud because you're praising God for what he has done in you. Uh, When we look at chapter one, if you look at Ephesians chapter one, and I hope you do this week, read it with your family. It won't take very long. But when you look at it and you actually believe those blessings personally apply to you, it's almost disorienting. It's unbelievable how much Paul packs into Ephesians chapter one. This is just the first six verses. Here's what he says that I am. He says that in Christ Jesus, Blake Farley, this guy you're looking at right now, I know it's hard to believe, but it's true of me. It's true of you. If you're in Christ Jesus, he says that I am a saint. I am blessed with all the spiritual blessings that could possibly be bestowed upon me. I am chosen. I am declared holy and blameless. I'm adopted as a son of the most high God, and I have an inheritance in the heavens that cannot be taken away from me. Now, some of you don't look very excited about those things, and I don't know what else to do besides tell you that those things are yours. And if you don't get excited about them, I don't know what to do because that should blow your ever-loving mind that that is true of us. I can't wrap my mind around the fact that these things are given to me, Blake Farley. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, Douglas Wilson says this. He says, if we get just a portion of what Paul is talking about here, we will buckle at the knees. If we are to learn this without collapsing, God will have to do it. Your condition before your conversion and your condition now can only be compared to Christ in the tomb and Christ at the right hand of the almighty God. How can this be? Unless you have an ego the size of Texas, your question should be, how could God do this for me? What is in me that would make God do this? And the answer is nothing. And what you need to know about our God is that he is the true creator God. There's two types of creation. And uh, we see both types in Genesis chapter 1. There's one type of creation that you and I can do. There's one type of creation that only God can do. The first type of creation uh, is one that you and I can do, and that is making something functional. We take things and we put these things together, and then these things work. At least that's what other guys tell me. I take things in an instruction book, and I put them together, and it doesn't work. And then I call Rick, and Rick comes and helps me fix it. But some of you are very good at putting things together. You can make things. I make sermons every single week, and I'm pulling from this book and that book and this thought and that thought, and I'm praying, and God's giving, and I put it all together in this kind of mess that sometimes makes sense. That is what I can do, and that's what you can do. But there's another kind of creation, and God does that kind of creation. If you read Genesis 1, he puts everything in order. He says, here's where the fish are going to be. Here's where the water is going to be. He makes it all functional. But the kind of creation that only God can do is the kind of creation called ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. This is in the beginning, the very first words, God created the heavens and the earth. And we want to say, out of what? What do you mean you created? No, I just did it. I created it out of nothing. There was an argument, a debate between a Christian scientist and an atheist scientist, and they were, they were going at it. And the atheist scientist said, I can recreate anything you call a miracle in my lab. I can do it. I can create any, recreate any of them. And the Christian scientist said, okay, create life. And the man said, easy. What I would do is I would start with soil. And the guy said immediately, the Christian scientist said, nope, you've got to stop there. You've got to get your own soil. You're using God's soil. See, because the truth is, is none of us can create out of nothing. I can't just make something appear, but God can. He can take nothing and make it something. And this is exactly what he does for us when we become Christians. This is how I'm a saint. It's how I'm blessed. It's how I'm chosen. Because God creates ex nihilo. Uh, Alistair Begg says this. This is what he defines as the difference between Christianity and all other religions. He says religion is always about how well I do. Christianity is about the wonder of what Christ has done, creating ex nihilo out of nothing. 
The best place to possibly see this in Ephesians is chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We see first our condition, and then we see three things that God has given us for none of our own doing. He just gives them to us ex nihilo through Christ Jesus. So I'm going to read all seven verses, and then we'll look at those three things that Christ has given us. The first three verses are about our condition. Uh, this is how we are at the beginning. We don't have much for God to work with. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Not much to work with. But verse 4, the best words in the Bible, in my opinion, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So the very first thing that we see that God gives us, even though we don't deserve it, is mercy. We are given mercy. Verse four, but God who is rich in mercy. Now, this is good. We often think that we want justice. We think we don't need mercy. We think the world needs more justice. Well, friends, what I want to tell you is you don't need more justice. You need more mercy. There's an old story from the 1800s about a, a painter who was painting a portrait for a very rich man. And uh, this man had, uh, had many painters come in and out, and uh, the painter sat down to begin the portrait, and the rich man said, now I want you to do my photograph justice. The other painters have messed my face up over and over again. I want you to do this photograph justice. And uh, the, the painter looked at him, and he said, sir, after I have looked at your face, what I have decided is that you do not need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> and that's so true. A lot of us in our, our photographs, I don't want my photographs to do me justice. I want Photoshop involved with my photographs. I don't need justice. I need mercy. Now, the reason why a lot of you don't think you need mercy is because you compare yourself to other sinners. And when you look at people who are worse than you, you feel pretty good about yourself. Uh, my, my two best friends probably in the whole world, uh, Tim and Rick, because uh, you guys come forward for just a second. Uh, You guys just come stand on either side of me. They're nervous. I told them they're going to be a part of it. Didn't tell them why they were going to be a part of the sermon. Uh, When I take a photograph with Rick and Tim, I'm not worried about it being posted. Uh, (laughs) I love Rick and Tim. I mean, look, they're great, great guys. Uh, A couple of things you might notice is they're they're both uh, like 20 years older than me, which helps. When did you graduate? 90. 90. So, I mean, I was still five years from being born when he graduated high school. And, uh, and you might also notice that I have a lot more hair on the top of my head than both of these guys. He and, hasn't had kids yet. Got <laughs> yeah, they're falling out. So when I take a photograph with these guys, I've got no fear. I look pretty good. Uh, and and I, yeah, I'm like, let's post it up. You know, whatever. Whatever we got to do. You guys can sit down. But this week, this week I took a photograph with my family. I live with three beautiful girls. And so when we take a picture... Uh, a professional photo with my family, I'm very nervous. Like, I'm double-checking my hair. I want to make sure I look good. I'm praying that the photographer edits the photos because I do not look great next to them. With that backdrop, what I look like is Shrek. It's not like with Rick and Tim. And so what we often do is we compare ourselves to people who we think we are better than. But the reality is, is God says, you don't get to compare yourself to people who you think you're better than. You compare yourself to my perfect law. You compare yourself to Jesus Do you measure up to Jesus? No, you don't. And that's why you know you need mercy. 
And there's nothing in you that God says, I'm going to be merciful to them because I like them. No, he's merciful to them because he's ex nihilo. He could create out of nothing. He could give us that mercy. Number two is God gives us love. God has great love for us. Verse four, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. Now, this is another thing that we sometimes just assume. Oh, yes, of course, God loves me. But maybe you ought to look in the mirror. There might not be that much to find that is lovable if you think about it. And yet God does love you. And this is something that will transform your life. Uh, Zach Ross, when he preached this summer, he shared a quote from A.W. Tozer that is one of my favorites. So good, I'd like to share it again. A.W. Tozer says, The whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we live under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. Does he want to be friends with us because we're really cool and we're awesome to be friends with? No. He's friends with us because he wants to be. Ex nilo. The only thing I can compare this to is being a parent. Uh, if, if you're our parent, maybe you understand this. It's, it's a love that I think God gives you. You just you love your kids. Uh, they don't have to do anything to earn it. In fact, they try to do things to take it away, but you still just you love them over and over and over again. Uh, my theory is God gives us that love so that we don't kill them when they're children. Uh, no, but, but you just you love your children. It doesn't matter what they do. You love them. And, and this is the way that God loves us. Except for the difference there is I believe God gives us that love. When it comes to God, God just has that love for us. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. And then number three, the last one is this, is he has made us alive. He's made us alive. Verse five, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. There is no hope for dead men. There is no hope for dead men. None of us, not a single one of us in this room can raise a dead man to life, but God can because he's the one who can create out of nothing. What you must understand, friends, is that we are not diamonds in the rough. This is what a lot of people think Christianity is. You come to the church, you're rough around the edges, and God will chisel out the diamond. That's not what you are. You're a big pile of manure. Uh, And that is not my quote. That is the quote of Martin Luther, one of the greatest uh, theologians ever in the 15th century. He said, we are piles of manure. He was talking to the, to the Catholics who thought uh, at the time, you know, we're really just pretty decent people. God just kind of shaves off the edges. And he says, no, what you are is a pile of manure. And God is not chiseling away. God is like a dung beetle who goes into the manure. And uh, you can think this is offensive, but I'm actually not even using the words that Luther used. He used the actual S word to prove his point. And if I use the actual S word, there'd be like uh, 12 Baptist grandmas that had a heart attack around here. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going, don't do it. No, <laughs> but, uh, but that's the idea. That's what happens. And it's actually a great illustration because what the dung beetle does is it goes into the manure and it rolls up balls. And then out of those balls, it lays its, its larva in it. And, and what comes out of the manure this is the most disgusting illustration you've ever heard in your life. And yet it's very fitting because what comes out of the manure is life. And what Luther says is if you think that is offensive, then you ought to be very offended by Christmas. Because in Christmas, the God of this universe went not into manure. He went into something far worse. He went into the womb of a sinner so that life might come for sinners. That is what Christmas is all about. And friends, it's not just Mary. This is why the Catholics will tell you Mary was sinless, because they can't, they can't wrap their mind around Mary being a sinner and God coming into it. But this is what God does, like a dung beetle. He goes in to manure, and life comes out of it. And the same is true for you if you are a Christian. This is what Paul says in Ephesians three sixteen and 17. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
That ought, ought to always amaze us, that God would want to dwell in your and I's hearts. And yet that's exactly what he does, because he's the God who can create new, ex nihilo, out of nothing. I'll end with this. Uh, if the band wants to go ahead and come back up, I'm getting very close to finishing. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. Uh, this is where if, if Ephesians chapter 2 is a mountain, we're starting to get dizzy because we're getting really high up and it's hard for us to understand. Verse 6, it says, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's as if right now what God is doing as an artist is he's painting a picture for show and tell to the divine council. One day your life will be on display and the angels are going to go, I cannot believe what you have done with this one, God. I cannot believe how you took this and turned it into this. That is exactly what is going on. I love what Alistair Begg says. He's sharing a story about a principal of Oxford. And it says this. It says, in years past, when the principal of Oxford was retiring, they commissioned a portrait of him to give as a gift. It was a wonderful painting. And the principal said to the man who had painted it, in years to come, when people view this picture, they will not ask, who is that man? They will ask, who painted that portrait? And you see, that's it. On that day, on the final day, The angels won't be asking, who are these people? They will say, who did this? And the answer is, God did this. He did it. He is amazing. And Sinclair Ferguson says this about our lives right now, Sint. says, heaven is the final showroom and earth is God's workshop as he paints on the canvas of our lives. Friends, you might not understand what God is doing in your life right now. You might not understand the suffering that you're going through. And I know you are because we all do. But what I want you to know is that God is active. He is painting a picture on the canvas that is your life. And you can trust that he's going to do it. You know why? Because he's the God who can create ex nihilo. He's the God who can show up when all seems lost. He's the God who can bring life out of death. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for these people who are here today. God, it is not an accident that they are here. I pray that you would stir their hearts. You'd stir their affections for what you have done for them. God, that we might sing your praises as glorious as they are. And God, give you praise for who you are and what you've done. God, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, if you would, let's please stand and sing together.